Dear Father, I pray that these books will be relevant to us today. And also, I pray that your heart of love and truth may penetrate each one of us here just now. Amen. So we described last time the splitting of the kingdom and all the bad things that happened here with idolatry completely taking over the kingdom of Israel. And we mentioned uh, how amazing it is that who gets the prophet? It's the bad people. So Elijah and Elisha go off here to Israel, not to Judah. And as we'll discuss today, Jonah goes to Nineveh, the enemy, and Amos here is sent off to Israel. So Jonah was really prophet to the enemy, which I just find remarkable. I decided just to leave out all the stuff, interesting stuff about the Assyrians, but just let me say in a nutshell, uh, they were about as uh, wicked and cruel as you can possibly imagine. And their escapades and war and how they treated uh, people is, uh, is really something. So this really was a very brutal nation that Jonah was sent to, and it's not surprising then that Jonah was uh, just head off, headed off for the other direction when God told him to go off to Nineveh. Why would you send a prophet there? So the message came, go to Nineveh, that great city, and speak out against it. I am aware of how wicked its people are. Jonah, however, set out in the opposite direction in order to get away from the Lord. And at the end of the book, he explains why he set out for the opposite direction. And you remember he's out on the ship and uh, there's a big storm and he has to tell these people what's going on. He said, I'm a Hebrew, Jonah answered. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made land and sea. Jonah went on to tell them that he was running away from the Lord. The sailors were terrified and said to him, that was an awful thing to do. The storm was getting worse all the time. So the sailors asked him, what should we do? to stop the storm. And Jonah answered, throw me into the sea and it will calm down. I know it's my fault that you were caught in this violent storm. And so, of course, they did throw him over the boat. And I'm sure Jonah uh, had uh, no doubt that he was going to die. I don't think he expected to be uh, rescued. But you know the story. At the Lord's command, a large fish swallowed Jonah and he was inside the fish for three days and three nights and just to make a, a little uh, side point here, but you know how the sign of Jonah, this is talked about so often, uh, Jesus would say in the same way that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the big fish, so the Son of Man spent three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. Uh, but just a question, how many nights did Jesus spend in the tomb? Most of you holding up two fingers. Um, three days and three nights, is this a, a contradiction? And, and some have said, well, maybe he died Thursday or you know, a different time to, to make it fit. Um, but the, the key thing here is the way time was thought of. This is not a, a contradiction at all. And the term here, inclusive reckoning of time, which is still done, I understand, in some parts of the world, like in China and Japan, uh, for example. Uh, and this may have changed recently, but uh, if a baby was born in China, let's say in December, that baby is one year old. The next month in January, the baby is two years old because it is one year old during that calendar year and then during the next year, that's the second calendar year. Okay, so it's two. We do things differently here. So when a baby is 11 months, 29 days old, well, it's not one yet. It's not one year old. And then magically a day later, two days later becomes one year of age. And so... Uh, for the, the Hebrew thinking of time, any portion of one day was considered day and a night. So Friday night, 
Saturday, Sunday, three days, three nights, inclusive reckoning of time. And uh, we can maybe get a little bit of clue just from Jesus' own words here in Luke, where Jesus would say, go and tell that fox, I am driving out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I shall finish my work. Um, So today is Thursday, would you call uh, Saturday the third day? Um, Again, it's just just a different way of... uh, of discussing time and understand some parts of the world, the week is eight days, seven days by our thinking. So not a contradiction. But anyway, picking up with the story here, the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah up on the beach, and it did. And I think this must have made uh, quite a show. Uh, you know, Don't you think uh, people knew about this? And so when Jonah comes in to give his message, everyone was saying, boy, that's the guy who was just spit up from a big fish uh, onto the beach. So once again, the Lord spoke to Jonah. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to the people the message I have given you. So Jonah obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to walk through it. But again, coming back to our inclusive reckoning of time, that didn't mean all day Monday, all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday. Three days by their way of thinking about days. Jonah started through the city, and after walking a whole day, he proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, so they decided that everyone should fast. And all the people from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth to show that they had repented. When the king of Nineveh heard about it, he got up from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. He sent out a proclamation to the people of Nineveh. This is an order from the king and his officials. No one is to eat anything. All persons, cattle and sheep, are forbidden to eat or drink. Now, how do you stop an animal from eating or drinking? Uh, never quite understand that. understood that. But anyway, the cattle were not to eat either. All persons and animals must wear sackcloth. Put sackcloth in the animals, apparently. Everyone must pray earnestly to God and must give up their wicked behavior and their evil actions. Perhaps God will change his mind. Perhaps he will stop being angry and we will not die. God saw what they did. He saw that they had given up their wicked behavior, so he changed his mind and did not punish them as he said he would. And, you know, God has mentioned changing his mind many times in the Old Testament. Um, What does that mean? Did God really change his mind? Is this an expression? Uh, I want to make some arguments here on both sides for this. First, God does not change his mind. Numbers 23, God is not like people who lie. He is not a human who changes his mind. Now, this would seem to be a contradiction. Whatever he promises, he does. He speaks and it is done. In 1 Samuel 15, Israel's majestic God does not lie or change his mind. He is not a human being. He does not change his mind. Very clearly. And here we have in Jonah, he changed his mind. In Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, today and forever. does not change. And in James, talking about the Father, all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change. And I put the King James, because it's just so authoritative here, in Malachi 3, I am God, I change not, period. Okay, so there we have verses that would seem to be very, very clear. There is no changing of God's mind. He is the same today and forever. But now let's let's point to some on the other side that would suggest, well, maybe God doesn't know everything. You remember how God came into the uh, Garden of Eden and said, where are you? 
and uh, would suggest, well, did he not know where they were? Did he walk around for a few hours and then find, found them behind a bush? Um, hmm, what about the rainbow? Do you remember God put up the rainbow after the flood and said it was to remind him not to send another flood? Did he need a reminder? What's the purpose there? The Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, remember both of these stories? God is described as needing to go down to find out what was going on. Okay, maybe God doesn't get very accurate information from his angels, so he needs to go down and check it out once in a while for himself. And we read this verse last time about child sacrifice in Jeremiah, where God, speaking, says, it did not even enter my mind that they would do this. Okay, these are all kind of interesting. So which is it? Well, some other examples of God changing his mind. We talked about this story in detail. I don't know if you remember, but remember uh, the people were worshiping the golden calf. God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to wipe them out. And um, Moses pleaded with God, said, strike me down if you're going to do that. And then the Lord changed his mind and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And then here in the story with Jonah, God changed his mind. So again, these are, for, for some, troubling because it would seem like, well, you know, the Bible can't make up its mind. It's not, uh, not consistent. Well, coming back to some of these verses here where Jesus is the same, the Father is the same, and in Malachi, I change not. Um, let me just tell you, because I want to get through the rest of these books, that I think uh, the essence here is God is the same today, yesterday, tomorrow, um, in character, no change. God is absolutely the same in character. I think that's what these verses are referring to. But yet at the same time, I wouldn't use these verses to say that God really uh, has changed either. Uh, We've been through these, but when God came searching for Adam and Eve in the garden, he knew where they were, right? It was the least threatening way to come. He called out and uh, didn't just, boom, scare them as they're hiding in the bush. All right, so he did it for our benefit. The rainbow, God doesn't need a reminder. He's not forgetful. Okay, it was for our benefit. He came down to check out Sodom and Gomorrah because he wanted to have a conversation with his friend Abraham so that he could explain. It was for our benefit. Uh, We spent so long discussing this story of God coming to destroy the people. And I would say that story, it was for our benefit because we can see Moses here reflecting the ideal of love for others more than love for self. He was willing to lay down his life. And God said, that's wonderful Moses. And he didn't do what it appeared he was going to do. He appeared to change his mind. And here in Jonah, I think God, just like a parent, saying what it takes, basically, to get their attention, they repented. They turned around and he appeared to change his mind. He did not do what he had threatened to do. So I think we can't actually harmonize all of these without uh, making them sound uh, inconsistent. God is always the same in character. God speaks a language we can understand, which to our understanding, it makes it sound like he's changing his mind. Uh, really, he's, he's, again, just reaching us uh, in, with words that we can understand. But you'll remember, Jonah was not happy. They repented. He wasn't coming like some evangelist hoping to win the whole city. He wanted them to burn. And so Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. And notice, that's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. And I mentioned sometime earlier, it would be, I think, just like 
us going off to Osama bin Laden and God has a message and maybe there's no way we want to go there. We want those people to burn. All right. And Jonah felt so strongly and the Assyrians, you know, they repented. They turned around. Read the book of Nahum. It describes how uh, Assyria fell off again and and had to be destroyed. But um, Jonah was so angry at these people, he really wanted them uh, to be punished. And you remember he ran up on the hillside hoping that maybe it would be burned down. He sat there to watch. And so they have this conversation, Jonah and God. The Lord answered, what right do you have to be angry? Jonah went out east of the city and sat down. He made a shelter for himself and sat in the shade, waiting to see what would happen to Nineveh. Well, just maybe it'll, be, it'll burn down. Maybe something good will happen. Then the Lord God made a plant grow up over Jonah to give him some shade so that he would Jonah was extremely pleased with the plant. But at dawn the next day, at God's command, a worm attacked the plant and it died. After the sun had risen, God sent a hot east wind and Jonah was about to be to the sun, beating down on his head again. I'm better off dead than alive, he said. Now notice the conclusion of the book of Jonah. Very interesting. But God said to him, what right do you have to be angry about the plant? Jonah replied, I have every right to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said to him, this plant grew up in one night and disappeared the next. You didn't do anything for it and you didn't make it grow yet you feel sorry for it. How much more then should I have pity on Nineveh, that great city? After all, it has more than 120,000 innocent children in it, as well as many animals. And the Message Bible translates this. um, So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure, this big city of more than 120,000 children who haven't yet known right from wrong, to say nothing of the innocent animals? And that is, uh, Jonah, don't you even care about the kids? Don't you even care about the animals in that city? And so the the teaching point here, and in this parallel, is we have this huge city, 120,000 children and animals. Had it been destroyed, Jonah would have been delighted. Okay, but the parallel here is we have this very small shade plant that gave Jonah a little bit of shade. It was destroyed, and he's so angry and depressed, he'd like to die. I mean, Jonah had things completely uh, turned around. So I think this story says very good things about God, not very good things about Jonah, who was uh, nevertheless a prophet, but uh, went and gave the message. It was successful, but uh, God's the only one who looks good in the book of Nineveh, not Jonah. But kind of as a parallel here, you remember that uh, Jesus, as he's going around with his disciples, he wasn't treated very well in some cities. And so the disciples are offended. Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? Again, they're kind of miffed here. They got kicked out of a city and they'd read their Old Testament, so they knew about some of these stories and uh, they would have been pleased, it would sound, if Jesus had called fire down from heaven. And you remember Jesus' reply. He turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you do not know what sort of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So historically, we are usually the ones eager to call down fire from heaven uh, on people, not God. Okay, much more to talk about here in the book of Amos. This is a very interesting book. Amos was a shepherd as the book opens up. And remember, this is in the same time period. So Jonah is off to Nineveh. Amos is off to uh, evangelize Israel, who has gone off into idolatry. So here we have Amos. And uh, he was specifically here during the time of uh, Jeroboam. 
And as is frequently the case, Micah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these prophets, uh, they had a rough life. And it would sound that, that Amos also had a rough time of it. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, then sent a report to King Jeroboam of Israel. Amos is plotting against you among the people. His speeches will destroy the country. This is what he says. Jeroboam will die in battle and the people of Israel will be taken away from their land into exile. Amaziah then said to Amos, that's enough prophet, go back to Judah and do your preaching there. Let them pay you for it. Don't prophesy here at Bethel anymore. Remember Bethel is the place where Jeroboam came, the first Jeroboam and said, here are these golden calves, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. This is the king's place of worship, the national temple. And Amos answered, I am not the kind of prophet who prophesies for pay. I'm a herdsman and I take care of fig trees. But the Lord took me from my work as a shepherd and ordered me to come and prophesy to his people Israel. So now listen to what the Lord says. And what I want to go through here are the main points as I read the book of Amos here this week that that I uh, took away from this book. First of all, it opens up with a message to all the nations. Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, and it's all the same. God's words, I will send fire upon the palace. I will send fire, I will send fire, I will send fire, Judah, and I will send fire upon Judah and burn down the fortresses of Jerusalem. Now, at some point here, we're going to have a, a whole talk just on fire because I think uh, it's, it's so important that we put every reference to fire all the way through in our understanding of this, especially as we come to the book of Revelation, which is entirely made up of the Old Testament. So we need to understand what this is talking about. But in each of these cases, none of them were actually destroyed by fire. It's interesting here with Judah, uh, when we get to the book of Ezekiel, we'll read, God says about the city of Jerusalem, I myself will kindle the fire. He's very specific. And then we just read on a year or two later, we read about... Um, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming and they burned down the city. So it is very, very interesting how often there's something very specific like this. I mean, imagine we're living back at this time. We'd say, well, God said it. It's going to burn with fire. And it didn't happen in any of these cases. Amos 5.2. This is the essence here of idolatry. Virgin Israel has fallen, never again to rise. She lies abandoned on the ground and no one helps her up. And as we spent some time talking about in Deuteronomy that the the essence, as I understand it, of God's anger is when he is pushed away and the people are hardened, hardened, hardened and eventually unreachable, his choice is either to manipulate, override, control, become a puppet master or give them freedom. And when he gives them freedom and abandons them, that's always when we see horrible things happening. And again, the essence of idolatry is... You know, our lover ultimately is supposed to be God. And anything that takes the place of that is an idol. That is idolatry. So that's why it's always described as an adulterous relationship. And here, virgin Israel has fallen in love with other gods. So why so much attention to other nations? Um, The book of Amos ends. This is a remarkable verse in Amos 9, 7. The Lord says, people of Israel, notice this, I think as much of the people of Ethiopia as I do of you. I brought the Philistines from Crete and the Syrians from Kerr, just as I brought you from Egypt. And I love this because we, we sometimes you know, imagine that God here, he's just involved with our church or our country or 
or whatever it might be. But, um, I mean, God is God to everyone, right? And I think we could say everyone in the world is really God's child. Some of you might have heard the uh, illustration, but, you know, I have three kids, so if you asked me how many kids do you have, I'd say three. Well, yeah, let's say here they grow up and one of them um, rebels and leaves the house and gets into lots of trouble. If you asked me how many kids I had, would I say two? No, I have three kids, right? I always have three kids. So uh, we're all God's children, and I think it's helpful to look at everyone in the world as God's child. Now, some are behaving very badly. Some are completely separated from God, but they're God's child nonetheless. And so I like that in the book of Amos, God is so intimately involved with the other nations, the other countries, and we see how he's even doing things here with these other nations. Okay, he's trying to reach the world through Israel. Okay, that's, that's his ultimate goal. But yet, he's, he's very much involved, pulling out all the stops. And we could just make a list here of people in the Bible, not Jews, who yet uh, had some remarkable things done for them by God. Two women, Rahab and Ruth. Rahab, the prostitute. Ruth, the Moabitess. And we talked about the cruel God of Moab. Um, so amazing that these are in the line, the ancestry of Jesus. Uh, Naaman, of course, who had leprosy. Kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, who very much uh, responded to God in a positive way. And when Jesus came, who had great faith? It's the Roman officer, where Jesus said, I tell you, I've never found anyone in Israel with faith like this. I assure you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But those who should be in the kingdom, I mean, these people who had the Bible, who had the prophets will be thrown out into the darkness. Now, of course, not all of them, but the point here is, hey, here's this Roman officer, man of great faith. Uh, what's wrong with the rest of you? And the Canaanite woman, who remember what he did to her to make this incredible teaching point for his disciples. And in the end, he said, you are a woman of great faith. Canaanite, heathen woman. Okay, so we're all God's children. So here are the, point, the, the main points here about the message of Amos. First of all, I think it's important to note that these were a religious people. Very religious. This comes up quite strongly in the book of Amos. The sovereign Lord says, People of Israel, go to the holy place in Bethel and sin if you must. Go to Gilgal and sin with all your might. Go ahead and bring animals to be sacrificed morning after morning and bring your tithes every third day. Go on and offer your bread and thanksgiving to God and brag about the extra offerings you bring. This is the kind of thing you love to do. Okay, so they were religious. They were bringing their tithes. They were offering lots of sacrifices. But recall last time we discussed their picture of God now was entirely of a God who, an angry God who needed to be appeased. Lots of sacrifice, child sacrifice uh, could completely flipped around. But yet they're very religious. The Lord says, I hate your religious festivals. I can't stand them. When you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not accept the animals you have fattened to bring me as offerings. Stop your noisy songs. I do not want to listen to your harps. Instead, let justice flow like a stream and righteousness like a river that never goes dry. Stop bringing me all this blood and sacrifice. Do what is right. Do what is just and right. So they were religious people. But the other thing is they were very rich and had absolute disdain for the outcasts of society. And as, as I read this book here this week, parallels between, I hate to say, our world today and the book of Amos uh, were really jumping out at me. 
But notice here the description. They sell into slavery honest people who cannot pay their debts, the poor who cannot repay even the price of a pair of sandals. They trample down the weak and helpless and push the poor out of the way. At every place of worship, people sleep on clothing that they have taken from the poor as security for debts. I think I mentioned before, there are abundant references in the Bible to our obligation to take care of the poor and the outcasts of society. And it's very clear that in Amos, there was uh, disdain for these outcasts. The Lord says, these people fill their mansions with things taken by crime and violence. They don't even know how to be honest. Only a few will survive of Samaria's people who recline on couches. So there was a group of rich people who had it good and they were doing nothing for the outcasts. And about the women of this time, listen to this, you women of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel who grow fat like well-fed cows of Bashan, who mistreat the weak, oppress the poor, and demand that your husbands keep you supplied with liquor. So there was quite a separation here between the rich and the poor, apparently. You have oppressed the poor and robbed them of their grain, and so you will not live in the fine stone houses you build or drink wine from the beautiful vineyards you plant. I know how terrible your sins are and how many crimes you've committed. You persecute good people, take bribes, and prevent the poor, again, from getting justice in the courts. How terrible it will be for you that have such an easy life in Zion and for you that feel safe in Samaria. How terrible it will be for you that stretch out on your luxurious couches, feasting on veal and lamb. And this is not a point about vegetarianism, but about the lifestyle, I think, of these people. You like to compose songs as David did and play them on harps. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest perfumes, but you do not mourn over the ruin of Israel. Israel was rich at this time. The ruin of Israel was a spiritual ruin of Israel. And they weren't the least bit sad about that. Your feasts and banquets will come to an end. The sovereign Lord Almighty has given this solemn warning. I hate the pride of the people of Israel. I despise their luxurious mansions in the face of the suffering that was going on on the other side of the street. And so these people like uh, many of us, long for the day of the Lord. But God would say, how terrible it will be for you who long for the day of the Lord. What good will that day do for you? For you, it will be a day of darkness and not of light. It will be like someone who runs from a lion and meets a bear, or like someone who comes home and puts his hand on the wall only to be bitten by a snake. The day of the Lord will bring darkness and not light. It will be a day of gloom without any brightness. Again, apparently they were assuming that the day of the Lord, whatever that meant to them, would be a very, very positive thing. Maybe they wrote songs about it, but uh, God's trying to shock them here out of their false security. So uh, what parallels uh, might there be today? Again, the, the truth that God was trying to represent through his people Israel was now completely counterfeited. The truth about God uh, had become a lie. And if we just imagine how Jesus was and how these people were living, completely opposite. And this study that came out just a few months ago, uh, which uh, I found quite shocking. This was a survey of 867 people, ages 16 to 29. And 440 were non-Christians, 385 were active churchgoers. And if we look here at the 44 non-Christians, here was their perception of Christianity. And 91% anti-gay image, this was their negative stereotype here of Christianity, 
87% judgmental, Christians are judgmental. 85% Christians are hypocritical. And what I found uh, quite shocking about this is when we just think about Jesus, uh, what was his message? Was it not, who did he have hard words for? It was always the people who were hypocritical and judgmental. He was the opposite of being judgmental and hypocritical. And we'll talk about this other issue here in just a minute. But what was even alarming too is among the 305 churchgoers, 80% viewed their own church as anti-gay, 52% judgmental, 47% um, hypocritical. Now, Christianity, we put the name Christ right in there, right? Because we should be reflectors of Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what it is to be a Christian. And uh, listen to some of the, uh, the survey comments. This person who did the survey, Kinneman, said one of the biggest surprises for researchers was the extent to which respondents said that modern-day Christianity was no longer like Jesus. And some Christians preferred to call themselves followers of Jesus or apprentices of Christ because the word Christian could limit their ability to relate to people, uh, which, is, which is pretty sad. And just, you know, when we think about, uh, boy, I didn't mean this to be such a maybe political or whatever message here, but when we just think about maybe what is Christianity known, I'm not saying all Christianity is known for this, but if you just turn on the TV and the stereotypes about Christianity, what are the Christian issues today? Well, it's frequently described as anti-gay, anti-abortion, about stem cells, pledge of allegiance in schools, very much tied with the war in Iraq, politics, heavily tied with politics. I don't know how many of you watched uh, the special... Uh, God's Warriors on CNN, but it was all about uh, these Christian groups that have organized to get the right people elected, to force the president to do something, to get the right Supreme Court justices. I mean, they're well-organized groups, and historically, sure, Christians should vote. I mean, no problem there, but to organize politically, historically, has been devastating from a church perspective. And getting Ten Commandments in buildings. So I guess the question is, if Jesus were to lay out his agenda for the Christian church today? Would this be uh, what he would like the Christian church to be known as? What's the counterpoint to, to HIV during the day of Jesus? It was leprosy, right? Same stigma, outcasts of society, the religious leaders, think how they looked on the lepers. And so here we have this leper coming up to Jesus. A man suffering from a dreaded skin disease came to Jesus, knelt down and begged him for help. If you want to, he said, you can make me clean. And I would love to hear the way the words were said, I'm sure with uh, great emotion, but we know how Jesus responded. He was filled with pity and reached out and touched him. I do want to, he answered, be clean. And so to say that Christianity is anti-gay would be like saying Jesus was anti-leper. I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't match up. And so I, I feel like Christians today should be filled with pity at the suffering and the outcasts of society. We should reach out and want to help at every opportunity. That's what we should be known for rather than as, again, I'm not saying you, but as a whole, judgmental, critical people. We are to love and serve as Jesus did. Remember the company that Jesus kept. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, what kind of company? They had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? So to be a Christian, we're going to act cozy with crooks and riffraff, as the Message Bible puts it. Okay, how did Jesus do that? 
Well, a few chapters later, when the Son of Man came, he ate and drank, and everyone said, look at this man, he's a glutton and wine drinker, a friend of tax collectors and other outcasts. And so I think as Christians, again, we're going to love and serve in Christ-like manner, reach out to the outcast of society. If you're an outcast of society, the name Christian should spark, there's someone I can trust. That's someone who will help me, not condemn me. How did Jesus treat people? The woman caught red-handed in adultery, didn't point a finger at her. What did he say? I do not condemn you. And I find it remarkable even how he treated the religious leaders who brought the woman. He didn't even point his finger at them. He wrote down in the dirt, and when they looked down, saw what they had done, they, they walked away. Now, yes, he did have hard words for people, but it was to the hypocrites. I mean, it was, again, when he really had to speak hard, it was to the religious leaders. He never said, woe to you adulterers and outcasts of society. It was the self-righteous that Jesus have had hard words for. So if I could just uh, show you this in, in conclusion, this is something I was just aware of here very recently. My niece is a senior at La Sierra doing social work, and uh, you might know about this, some of you, but there is a large homeless city uh, right at the base of Ontario Airport. There are about three, 400 people who have just set up tents, and the city of Ontario has just allowed them to, to camp out there, which is, uh, you know, at least they, they give them a place here. But it's quite shocking here, the stories that she tells me about people who have diabetes, who don't get their medications, and it's just this large encampment of uh, homeless people. And there's the Ontario airplane taking off, and we have all of these uh, shacks. Here it is at nighttime, a really, really good picture there. But all around the streets, there are all these uh, old uh, buses and motorhomes and vans that people are living in. And uh, here's a couple in their 50s who've never been homeless, but now here they are without a job. And this was a really sad uh, case here. This is a 47-year-old woman who is five months pregnant and has never seen a doctor. And this is a five-month-old who's growing up homeless um, here in this, uh, in this out camp. It just kind of reminded me, though, here of the time of Amos when, boy, lots of, uh, boy we enjoy lots of uh, good things and there is so much suffering uh, right in the midst of us. And again, I think to ultimately be the hands, the voice, the face of Jesus to the world, uh, we should really reach out to people like this who are suffering. So I'd love to see the school do something about this. But I, I don't know what would be possible, but it seems like mission trips to Mexico can be done. We can drive off to Ontario. So Jesus went everywhere. What did he do? He did good. And I think that should be the mission of our life. Every day we do good. We do what we can. Uh, have some of you heard the story about, um, now I'm not going to remember, but it's this uh, group in uh, Los Angeles that feeds about 40,000 homeless people um, every single day. I'm, I'm blocking on the name. But these men went out there initially about eight, ten years ago to tell people about Jesus. And they just went around telling people about Jesus, and they said it was like throwing seeds on concrete. No one was interested. And uh, so finally, they just, actually it was this passage here that they read that, made them change their mind. Well, Jesus went everywhere just doing good. And so what they eventually ended up doing is they went to a park in the worst part of Los Angeles and they just started cleaning it up. And they just said, okay, we're just going to clean up all the trash. And uh, finally, some people asked them what they were doing and they ended up getting into small people who just said, we're going to keep this park clean just because it seems like a good thing to do. And uh, as time went on, more volunteers came. They started feeding people and now they're feeding about 30, 40,000 people every single day. 
And I know this because my daughter went out as part of a school-sponsored thing and spent a day out there. And what happened is, when you begin serving people and doing good for them, now all of a sudden that ground is softened. It's like soil, and now you can actually have a meaningful discussion. If you go out to people like this, I think out in Ontario, and start hammering them over the head about Jesus, I don't know that you get that far. But if you feed them, give them blankets, uh, make a regular point of going out there, uh, it might develop to something very positive. So two phrases that have been helpful for me. Value faithfulness over effectiveness. Uh, That, I think, rubs us wrong as uh, medical students and people who have to study a lot. Effectiveness, efficiency is at a premium. But value faithfulness, do what is right over effectiveness, and value service over success. Jesus lived a life of service, and I would say a life of service uh, ultimately is a life of success. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you have cared for all of your children. We see in the book of Amos how you reached out to every nation, to each one of your children, and please help us to somehow be more effective as Christians in the world, that we might reflect the kind of life that you lived by loving service to other people. Amen.